everyone, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia get together, hang out, and talk about movies. Uh, we are in the middle of Chris Moss, Chris Month, uh, honoring our favorite Chris's of, uh, of the movie world. And um, before we get into today's Chris movie, I uh, want to see how everyone's doing, want to see if people have seen any movies lately or TV shows that they want to talk about. Tis the time for Star Wars. It comes out this week. The new one. The new the one, Rise one, of Skywalker, until the 50 more that come out. Right, sure. <laughs> but yeah, this is exciting. Dave, you sound like you have some thoughts about... <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, I'm excited for this movie. I, I'll say that. We'll see how it goes. When are you, when are you seeing it? I don't know. Uh, I'm not, like, you know, I'm not at this point in, like, a big hurry anymore. I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. It'll be in theaters for a while, so. I'm seeing it on Friday. Good for you. Whoa. I'm just saying. Great for you. I'm happy for you. <laughs> I hope Baby Yoda's in it. I know he won't be, but. Different Maybe they anticipated the big success Baby Yoda really would be, and they found a way to sneak Baby Yoda in, in the movie. They just, like, CG'd him in the corner Oh, my God. He just scene. pops up. And he's like the paper clip from the old Microsoft. He just pops <laughs> up and down in the little clippy. I mean, bottom right frame. If we've learned anything from the upcoming Sonic film, then we know that uh, an audience demand will change a movie, unfortunately. So did you see that studio close, the, the redesign? Oh, so that mm-hmm. sunk the ship. I, I guess I don't know. Probably unrelated. I don't know, but mm. yeah, the studio that did it now is closing its doors and firing like two hundred people. That sucks. That does suck. Damn. Um, I also heard that the people who created Baby Yoda don't like people calling it Baby Yoda. <laughs> oh, interesting. Hmm. What would they prefer? I don't know, but people were like, "If you didn't want us to call it Baby Yoda, why don't you tell us what the name is?" So the character is not given a name. I don't know. I don't watch the show. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, well, for those of you listening, maybe not that I know some of. light on this subject. Hmm. He's a cutie. That's, that's all you need to know. Any other exciting movies or thoughts people have about things they've seen recently? I've just been going down a rabbit hole of watching BBC Merlin. Um, it's off Netflix now to the major pain of my life um but i bought the complete series so never fear yes <laughs> i've um uh, may dvds live on you know what and we, as, as we were discussing outside i think with television shows it probably will because of how quickly they contractually change hands with streaming formats and how many are kind of becoming uh, fledgling uh companies so you know maybe it is worth buying uh if not movies then tv shows on dvd um, this reminds me of when NBC announced that in 2021, The Office will be leaving Netflix for NBC streaming service. Right. And within, I think, 30 minutes, all DVDs of The Office on Amazon sold out. Yeah, I'm sure. That's kind of frightening. <laughs> Something about that gives me fear. <laughs> um, I've had a very rough week. I've been watching a lot of really, really intense media. Um, not the least of which, um, as I mentioned last time, is uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, the anime series on Netflix from the early 90s. Uh, I finished that and then watched the uh, the paired movie, uh, End of Evangelion, which is uh, a crushing, crushing movie. Mm. This is kind of having my heart broken again and again and again in a series of like 10 minutes of the middle of the movie. Um, it's got a lot of problems, very kind of like a questionable themes throughout the series, but it's really, truly fantastic. So I would recommend it. 
uh, but it is a real downer. Also a downer is the Turin Horse, which I've watched again. Um, the uh, Bellatar film, a um, Hungarian director, uh, which is a movie that's uh, just, as he's framed it, kind of like an, uh, an allegorical anti-creation movie where every day within six days, a little more is taken from the world. Um, like mat- like matter or like in hope a, <laughs> more more the latter okay. yeah but in in, in in kind of both ways it's really intense and really uh captivating movie i th- i suspect we'll talk about that sometime as a kind of litmus test for our cinematic patience because <laughs> it is a two and a half hour movie featuring about 15 minutes of dialogue and only 30 shots oh my so God. <laughs> very meditative and methodical very difficult but i think uh earns that um, as far as uh, Evangelion, by the way, there is a bit of a party downstairs uh, in, in the house that we're at. Um, housemate is watching uh, uh, the end of the series and end of Evangelion with some friends. So if you do hear some spillover and uh, excited shouting or, or crying, it is probably inspired <laughs> by the trauma of that show. But uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I've been up to. And another doozy of a movie that I'll get to next week. Ooh. Um, yeah, I having realized that I had not seen many 2019 movies kind of binged a whole bunch um, to just sort of skim the surface in the same day. I watched the Irishman and once upon a time in Hollywood because I wanted to put myself through six over (laughs) six hours of long, long movie. But I enjoyed both. So yeah, it was a fun, I was like feeling, I I guess I was in that mode. Um, yeah, I, I went into both with very low expectations, and I think it uh, they exceeded met my expect- those. Okay. Yeah, met. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was good. like pleasantly. I, Irishman, I'll say, was a great movie to ha- to do all the chores in my house, have it playing, and then just leave the room for five minutes, come back in. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't mean that. Like I'm, I, I don't want to undercut. You know, I'm sure the hard work that Martin Scorsese put into this movie, but um, for me, my for my. Uh, watching experience viewing experience um i got a lot done and watched and enjoyed the movie so that's all i'll say about both of those movies um let's return to this month's theme uh which is uh celebrating the chrises of movies that we love and uh We've had some excellent, uh, fun uh, discussions about Christopher Guest, about the movie Christine. This week we are doing uh, Chris Cooper, uh, who starred in 2002's movie Adaptation. Mm. Um, This movie was written by uh, Charlie Kaufman, uh, who wrote Being John Malkovich, um, Schenectady, New York. He wrote Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Anomalisa. And the movie was directed by Spike Jones, who did, being John Malkovich, her Where the Wild Things Are. Um, and this was their second collaboration together after being John Malkovich. And it stars Nicolas Cage uh, as two of the main characters, two twin <laughs> brothers. Uh, Chris Cooper, uh, who was the spotlight of this episode, who uh, plays a... Um, horticulturist who's obsessed with orchids, John LaRoche, and Meryl Streep, who's a writer, a real writer. All these characters are real people. Um, and um, Almost all of them. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, important <laughs> distinction. Um, but just to, before I kind of open it up uh, to get people's thoughts about this movie, uh, just a quick synopsis for those who have not 
watched it before. Um, so just coming off the success of having written Being John Malkovich, Hollywood screenwriter Charlie Kaufman attempts to write an adaptation of Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief, a book that follows this eccentric Florida horticulturist John LaRoche's quest for this very rare and elusive ghost orchid. Uh, so the character of Charlie Kaufman is racked with self-doubt and has extensive writer's block and is also being de derailed by his twin brother, Donald, who's <laughs> also attempting to write a screenplay at the same time. So Charlie decides to upend uh, the entire story and actually write himself into the script. So this movie is essentially telling the story of Charlie Kaufman trying to write The Orchid Thief. Um, and... Yeah, so, you know what? I'll, I'll just kind of throw it out to the group. Um, who had seen it before? I'd seen it before in, like, high school. Okay, so it had been a while. It had um, been, a, a, yeah, since then, really. Okay, okay. Um, f and Sam and Connor, this was the first time you'd yeah. ever seen this mm -hmm. movie. Time. So, yeah, what what did you guys think? What were some, imp <laughs> some impressions <laughs> of this movie? <laughs> uh, it took a little bit to get into it and then once I sort of was like what is this film doing then I was like getting on board with it and um, by the last half of the movie really thoroughly enjoying the ride that uh, Charlie Kaufman was taking us on and interesting to see a movie about making the movie that we're watching um, I feel like maybe other films have tried other like meta level stuff but this one felt like very like unique to sort of like meta level filmmaking mm-hmm I'd say Synecdoche, New York is really comparable in that way. Um, I mean, that's one of my favorite movies. Um, and that's Kaufman and, writing and directing the film. So it's like him unleashed and is really <laughs> crazy. That was his first writing and directing. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, and that movie's I, I adore that movie, but it is, it is a lot like this movie if this movie weren't really a comedy. Um, like, it's very intense and very, like, <clears throat> very much exclusively. Not so much about, like... Um, the screenwriting process, which this is so modeled after, but so so much more after like the uh, the kind of struggle between um, solipsism and uh, creativity. Mm. Um, so that movie's a real doozy. We'll return to that someday. I really want to talk about that one. But um, this movie, yeah, it, it had been such a long time since I'd seen it that like I re faintly remembered like really liking it in high school, but not I wasn't ready for it then. So seeing it again now and appreciating how densely layered and like in uh you know the meta reality of it and the metaphorical reality of it i thought was really pretty stellar and um i'm sure we'll return to a lot of reasons why so i really love this movie and was really happy to watch it again yeah i really enjoyed it i liked the premise and something that really impressed me was just the work that nicholas cage did to be both of those characters and you know i had to I, several times i went back to see exactly when this movie came out 2002 because mm -hmm. it just looks like it's nick cage and i was so impressed <laughs> when they're both on screen and you see both of their faces that it because you you see movies today that can't manage that like i thought mm -hmm. of um captain america civil war where they de-aged robert downey jr and it looks terrible it is so scary <laughs> and to think that 14 years earlier they did something not similar but something just as difficult and managed it a lot better and um to kind of throw in some details about the characters that nicholas cage is playing so he's playing charlie kaufman 
and the twin brother, Donald, who is a fictional character, as Dave rightly pointed out at the beginning. Um, but he does have a writing credit on the... For, I've got a couple notes on that. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, as far as being um, nominated for writing, like, a, was it the Golden Globes or the Academies? Academy. Like being nominated for Best <laughs> Adapted Screenplay. Both of them were uh, acknowledged for... <laughs> Yeah, it's also a thing where Charlie Kaufman was nominated for a Golden Globe with Donald Kaufman, despite the latter being a fictional character, um, as far as uh, writing, uh, because they're both credited with the screenplay. Um, and though they were both nominated uh, for an Academy Award, the Academy made it known that in the event of vic a victory, the two quote-unquote brothers would have to share one statue. <laughs> um, yeah, and what differences in the movie do we see between Charlie Kaufman and his twin brother Donald? A lot. <laughs> I think the subtle ways that Cage, an actor not known for subtlety in any way, shape, or form. He really reins it in in this movie, which, it, yeah. And his performance is so focused and specific of how Charlie acts versus how mm -hmm. Donald acts. Uh, I, like, knew of this movie, and I thought that Donald was a fictional, like, a, an imaginary character mm -hmm. in this world. And so at the 20-minute, 30-minute, we're like, oh, he's actually... When he starts dating Maggie Gyllenhaal, it's like, oh, he's, this is like a real person in this world. And that's when the gears sort of started turning. Um, and seeing both of them, especially with his intro and Donald's lying on the ground and like inchworming his way, like <laughs> George Charlie. Yeah. Yeah. So his brother is temporarily, Donald is temporarily living with Charlie Kaufman mm -hmm. and is just always bothering him. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be a screenwriter. When he decides that he's so, also going to do that. Yeah. Who liked that idea, Mom? So Charlie Kaufman, as fictional or as like within the movie, is already an established writer, and it then, opens with him on the set of being John Malkovich. And mm -hmm. so nice sort of Tilda referential Swinton. moments. Um, and then Donald comes in and is like, <laughs> "I've decided I'm going to be a writer too." And it's one of those definitely sibling moments. You're like, uh. "Can't I just have this one thing?" <laughs> And uh, so some really funny back and forth with them. It's also really interesting, I think, in the sense that it could be interpreted as Donald is like an imagined version of Charlie Kaufman's self that is like a reflection and manifestation of his insecurities and like becoming like a like sort of like a hack screenwriter and like being satisfied with that and so on. But at the same time, interestingly enough, because this movie is so layered, it also introduces as Donald's writing the script, Charlie's criticism is like, well, if those two characters are the same character, they can't embody like they can't they can't like interact with each other. They can't be a physical representation of that character in that world because that breaks the the universe of the cinema you're creating. But at the same time, the screenplay goes on to do that. It deconstructs that by introducing like a Deus Ex Machia via the crocodile that we'll get into. It does become about like love and sex. It kind of like all the things that Kaufman is struggling with in his writer's block in the early parts of the film unravel in this kind of like riotous third act that violates a lot of his own standards, which is really cool. And it sort of is interesting that the movie we're going to talk about next week. Um, I think that we can have both of these like very cerebral sorts of cinema and also have the action, the drama, the drugs, the sex. And I think this is such a great commentary of like mm -hmm. movies can have both in the same movie. And that's totally perfect. Totally cool. You can have right. one, you can have the other, um, it all can work. It all can be cinema. And at the beginning, you also see as Charlie is asked to adapt this book, um, this real book, 
Uh, he's like, I want to do, I don't want to write a story that a character goes through changes and it mm-hmm. learns new things about themselves and like the expected ways that a story should go. And then he's constantly confronted by like characters and by situations that sort of like are like, well, this is because he's like, I want to present a story that is more real life. Like people don't change. Things aren't what you end up building them up to be. And it's like, how does his character confront situations that sort of like are lending themselves to like moments of reflection and moments of change. And so we see how that unfolds throughout, um, throughout the story. Um, to pivot kind of to, to uh, Chris Cooper's character and LaRoche, um, some Notes that I was making it was it, about why I decided to pick this movie as, as, as a Chris movie. And I think when I had first seen this movie, I was so pleasantly surprised by Cage's performance. I was like, ah, this is so fun to watch and he's hilarious. But I think that also um, Chris Cooper, who plays the Orchid Thief, John LaRoche, um, is such a such a fun character and or oh my god i use the exact same phrase that they say in in the book no sorry that's a side note i think that this i think this character was one of the hardest to play um the the most challenging and ultimately rewarding character the movie is you know screwball and silly and um but it really asks fundamental questions about books and movies ability to tell real stories and the people within them so the the writer susan orlean is trying she's writing for the new yorker she's trying to write this story in this piece about this real guy who by many respects is like this fascinating character this sort of eccentric um larger than life floridian who just loves to find rare orchids and rare flowers um but and so it's like this question of what happens when real people are distilled or reduced to characters or even ultimately caricatures and like within within stories. And I think Cooper's performance is so funny and like captures some amazing one liners and hilarity of uh, LaRoche's his character. Hmm. But also I think his character or his performance highlights the way LaRoche resists sometimes and pushes back at attempts that the story that's the ways that the story attempts to use him as a device. And in some situations, how like Susan uh, and her like New Yorker writer friends sort of like condescendingly refer to him as a fun character, which is what I just <laughs> accidentally said um, and just reduce him to sort of this like, yeah, this trope or device. Um, and that was kind of a long winded way of saying, I just, I think, Chris Cooper nails nails it and it's so fun to watch too in this character any thoughts about John LaRoche I mean Chris Cooper really went for it at the very end when um he and Meryl Streep are like having sexy times and uh <laughs> Nick Cage is there and he like runs out to get him and I was like oh yeah like totally nude and I mean you don't really see much but Still, like, when you are an older actor and you commit to scenes like that, I, like, really respect that. And you don't you don't see it as often or um, as completely with men as you do usually with women. So, like, props to you, Chris Cooper, for that. He also grew out his hair and had uh, lost a lot of weight and had um, a prosthetic uh, set of false teeth throughout the film. Yeah. 
Oh, so yeah, he's like, like missing what two or three of his front a teeth? a bunch of his front teeth yeah. yeah because of as we learn later an, uh, an accident um and yeah really just commits this performance through and through like there's definitely moments where i mean like the the way that he's portrayed or perceived like shift through uh streep's character's perspective like from this sort of like humble man into like this sort of like savant into like someone who is ultimately in their own way kind of disappointing or so we're led to believe and at the same time cooper commits completely to the character so it's not on him to portray those differences it's more just how the film around him perceives that and how we therefore like perceive an individual character relative to our interaction in relation with them i think that's such a great way of putting it yeah he is the character and he's just playing the character yeah through and through and feels deeply rooted in the character he's portraying but you're totally right the whole point is that like the ways that different people perceive him shapes the way that like the sort of contours of his character or the way that yeah and like molded how how often he like he reminds us that like he's had you know in-depth and uh intimate interpersonal relationships before with people that have ultimately abandoned him because they were only seeking what they needed from him at that time yeah you're all leeches everyone people follow me because they want something from me because they're yeah they're sort of projecting their own desires onto what they think that i'm going to be and ultimately we under come to understand that the conclusion of the book is after all of this like research on him like he finally invites Susan to actually go on a search for this ghost orchid and I've never read the book but I'm assuming they mm-hmm. from what we get from the movie she never finds she never sees one and like in this sort of final moment where they get lost in the Florida swamps he's just sitting there just he's just a dude like he's just Mm -hmm. and he's saying like the same kind of stuff he's been saying the whole time but suddenly it seems less profound you know yeah right and she was to get the story she was trying to build out this character um yeah so i think that's such a such a great point um dave and a testament to chris cooper's uh performance but there is oh one of my favorite scenes is when she's driving in the truck with him and she's like why orchids like why are you so passionate about finding these flowers? And he just sort of like lists all the things that he was passionate about before. He was like, when I was a kid, he was like, fossils were the only thing that made sense to me in this (laughs) fucked up world. And then he tells her like, he was like, all right. And then he was done with fossils. And then he like was obsessed with fish. And then he goes, fuck fish. I'm done with fish. (laughs) He's like, I don't even go in the ocean. It's just, oh, there's just such, yeah, some really, really great, great scenes. It's like a character that is in as much uh, searching, searching in as much as like um, a quest for like purpose and focus and meaning as the very people that like come and go to him and don't find it and then leave, you know. I think this is a really <clears throat> thinking about Streep's character and Nicholas and uh, Charlie Kaufman about obsession. And I think it's really interesting pairings with uh, Streep and Cooper and then Cage and against Cage of how obsession drives Streep and Charlie to these like really depraved levels of like they're just losing themselves Mm -hmm. when Cooper is like, I just move on to the next thing. And she's like, how can you like move on to something that you love so much? Isn't a little bit of it with you? And he's like, no, I haven't stepped one toe in the ocean since I like made that decision. And Donald is just like oh, that's a cool idea. Great, I'll run with this. And so it's sort of like interesting, these two pairings of characters. And I think hmm. if you didn't have the Florida story and the New Yorker story, it would just, the movie would just like be spinning its wheels and kind of just probably get really too like, 
esoteric and um, meta level with it. So the story, I think, of Streep and Cooper is really kind of like the treading that like keeps the momentum of the story going forward. So the story he was originally supposed to tell ultimately saves his movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I think there's something to be said maybe about LaRoche as a character being a representation of maybe like actors, how, um, you know, for, for people, they so want desperately a, a sense of connection and meaning to something exotic or other than themselves uh, and something performative. And then once that feeling has passed or the movie ends, they just move on with their lives as people do with him. And he just moves on with his life in different equally invested passions as like an actor segueing through parts and identities and personalities through film. I don't know. I feel like this film says everything about filmmaking, but it's difficult to pin down a lot of different things, but that's one that I think stands out a bit. Maybe. Do we ultimately think that the like the meta take and the sort of self-referential narrative, uh, is it fun to watch? Like, is it, does, do you think it like works? Um, because I mean, Charlie Kaufman himself is like in this, when he realizes he has to write himself into the screenplay, he says it's narcissistic, it's self-indulgent, it's pathetic. <laughs> Earlier in the movie, he's like, I'm a walking cliche. <laughs> yeah. One um, of the first lines of the movie. Yeah. Do we, do we buy this story? Do we think? I love it. That was a good choice. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think that. I don't know. How do you make a movie that's just about flowers? You, I mean, you don't because the, the source material isn't just about flowers. It's about obsession. It's about uh, interpersonal relationships and everything else. And I think that he comes to realize that, but ultimately acknowledge that the only way that he can truly encounter that is to throw himself into it as well. What like a brave choice to like adapt a book. And uh, what was Susan Orlean Orlean or to like, I can't imagine what that meeting was like to go up to her. <laughs> I, I've got some, you notes, got some notes on that. So, yeah. So, I mean, um, the, the whole creation of the thing is that it was uh, uh, the film is based on Coffin's struggle to best adapt the uh, the Orca Thief by Susan uh, Orlean. Uh, Kaufman quickly got into writer's block uh, since the book lacked the dramatic structure necessary for a movie, he thought. Um, so he decided to write a screenplay about himself struggling with writing a book adaptation, exaggerating many of the story elements and characters and making new ones, such as uh, such as Donald. Um, knowing that the producers would reject this idea, he didn't tell any of them about the new direction uh, in which he was <laughs> taking the story and simply uh, handed in the finished script. Although the movie was supported by Spike Jones, Kaufman himself believed in the end it would ruin his career, which it didn't. Um, Susan Orlean, on the other hand, uh, was uh, very concerned that some people would think her portrayal in the film was accurate. Uh, in a 2012 interview, she stated, um, reading the screenplay was a complete shock. Uh, my first reaction was, quote, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> they they uh, had to get permission, and I just said, no, are you kidding? This is going to ruin my career. Uh, very wisely, they didn't really pressure me. Uh, they told me that uh, everybody else had agreed and I was somehow emboldened. Uh, it was certainly scary to see the movie for the first time. It took me a while to get over the idea that I'd been insane enough to agree to it, but I love the movie now. So ultimately, she really came to like the uh, the movie in the end. Yeah, brave of Charlie Kaufman, obviously, to write himself, but like, I feel like brave of her to be yeah. like, yeah, I'll take the story for what it is and... Hope that people <laughs> don't think that that's really me. And I've not, I, yeah, uh, I had never heard of her, nor had I heard of the book before watching mm -hmm. this movie. So I was, yeah, um, interested in her as a real character. 
Um, what do we think about the third, like the final, the <laughs> ending? Uh, we talked about at the beginning, like how he really said, I don't want to write a movie that's just expected with the ideas that characters change and like, you know, go through these expected um, turning points. But then he has a moment where he goes to a screenwriting king <laughs> seminar yeah. seminar yeah so this guy robert mckee which i also guess is a real guy yeah yeah, yeah. He, uh, he wanted brian cox to play him yeah, oh my god him. brian cox yes brian cox brian was cox su- succession basically playing logan roy but in screenwriting hollywood <laughs> are you a fucking uh, idiot yeah that's so like logan you're roy. gonna waste two hours of my life <laughs> yeah. succession is just Great. two seasons of that <laughs> um but he so this is a, a seminar that Donald had been going to and getting some really great advice and like these main tenets of how to write a good story. And mm-hmm. so Kaufman, Charlie's finally like, OK, I'll go. What is this guy really going to tell me? And some of the things that like McKee ends up telling him is like. The character must change. Change must, must come from them. There's a shot of some of the main tenets that McKee proposes, which is like, trust thine audience. And like, mm-hmm. uh, or, or was it trust? The, I think it was like, make sure. I don't know. I think it's like, get buy-in from your audience. Make sure characters go through a change. Never use a song as a way to like show <laughs> transformation right. or like show anything meaningful. Never have a deus, deus ex machina. Never have a it, deus ex machina. Yeah. And then... All these rules. So what happens at the end of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, I don't know. I think it, you know, it's maybe reflective of uh, Kaufman's journey in the sense that he's realizing that uh, part of his his writer's block is based in a notion of like obsessive perfection in terms of his craft and art and representing and adapting a work, but realizing that in, in spite of himself, the only way that that can work in some sense is like a somewhat conventional structure or at least conventional like cinematic ploys and techniques and and tropes, uh, even though he thinks them distasteful until instructed otherwise there reluctantly um which is also perhaps a reflection of like him as a character like realizing that his connection to other people is more inspiring than this kind of like solipsistic obsessive kind of writing style and so on and like being so deeply dedicated to an artistic vision as opposed to what functionally works within one's craft i don't know there's a lot to unpack i think even brian cox is sort of a deus ex machina of sorts oh, like yeah, kind sort of, of, yeah. giving kind this revelatory moment to cage about how to end his film because uh, he tells him you know your film can have flaws and like not be super great for a lot of it but if you have like a really killer ending that mm-hmm. people are going oh, yeah. to love then like that's what people will walk away with do you think the ending fit the movie yeah i don't know how else you end it really <laughs> at that point i mean i accidentally somehow <laughs> oh yeah, yes, yeah right. Right. How did you watch this movie, Sam? <laughs> uh, probably, honestly, <laughs> I think I would do it again this way. <laughs> so um, this movie is available on an app called Crackle, and it's Crackle is what it is. It's free, but there's like commercials every 20 minutes. It's not that bad. But um, for some reason, when I watched it, my phone and my Chromecast just were not getting along, and the movie starts like 
what I thought was the beginning was 100% the end. It was like 20 minutes left of the movie. It starts with Meryl Streep in a hotel where she's getting high and then she's talking to LaRoche on the phone and then he goes to him in the house and then everything just goes to shit and happens. And I thought like this was just the movie and I was like, yeah, like jump into action <laughs> like that. This, everything made sense. Every bit made sense. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this is how you introduce this character. Sure. I'm on it. I'm with it. And then like the the ending happens. They're in the swamp, whatever. The end credits come up and I went, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> <Yes>! <laughs> so like. Yeah, it it does. I yeah. I, feel, I feel like it fits because of that experience alone. And the movie is kind of scrambled in so many ways. It's really interesting to have begun the movie right at a. Tr- so it's like, I would say you probably picked up right exactly at that final moment because there's a kind of a conclusion as Charlie Kaufman reads the end of the Orchid Thief, the book, and it ends on this note of kind of John Relo- or John LaRoche is not who I built him up to be we never found the orchid thief that's the way life is end of story but then charlie and donald start to think maybe she was lying maybe there was like a romantic relationship between Mm -hmm. susan orlean and john laroche and so then that enters a new chapter in the final chapter when they like unearth this uh secret uh, sort of these clandestine conspiracy, yeah, yeah, Scandal, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, yeah. So it's like they're having uh, sex, and they're also uh, have this. They're like running orchid. They have this like illegal orchid business. <laughs> um, all of this stuff, and yeah. Donald dies. There's some car chases. Uh, LaRoche gets killed by an alligator in a moment. He's about to kill Charlie, which is the main (laughs) deus ex machina. Deus ex crocodile. Crocodile. There we go. It's our new podcast name. (laughs) And yeah, it's kind of like Charlie's like, whatever. I'm going to give the, I'm going to just make the movie have all of these wonderful detail, like action romance all of it i'm just gonna like turn it up three notches and make the end of the movie a banger and i was like yeah why not (laughs) donald's death was the most uncomfortable (laughs) and again i genuinely thought that this was part of the beginning of the movie and i was like oh so you're giving this guy like a tragic backstory okay like i (laughs) i get that and then the song i i i Imagine me. Oh yeah, so it also introduces us to all of the Mickey. Yeah, it was like, don't let the crocodile uh, solve that issue. Don't introduce the song that suddenly they had mm-hmm. as their special brotherly song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes all yeah, it makes good on all the criticisms that it, it employs as like a crappy Hollywood tropes as functional realities. And even as he's finishing writing, like, the script, I, f- I forget if he's writing or on his tape recorder, and he's like, and add narration here. It's like, no, that guy said not to narration. No, fuck that guy. I'm going to have voiceover in my film. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And which is how the movie has, opens. Yeah. And he has, he has a self-conscious narration to himself at the very end of the film and acknowledges that, which is great. Mm-hmm. All right. McKee hates voiceover. Um, I'll say, as far as that beginning opening scene, I like, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, oh, how it takes me back, or even still, no. What, who am I kidding? Like the moment he's sitting at a typewriter and he's like, "How to start? I'm hungry. I need coffee. Coffee will help me think, but I should write something first. 
then reward myself with coffee. <laughs> and he's like, all right, establish a theme. And he goes, banana nut is good. That's a good mo-. I'm like, oh my God, the, like always yep. when I'm trying to like, like, okay, focus, focus. Oh, I got to get up with that coffee. I'm like, this is exactly what my life is like every time I try to do something. It's even every morning before going to work. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Right, I'll leave. I'll leave. But first, oh no, I got to just move that one thing. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh. It's just a great film about the creative process. Mm-hmm. I feel like this film just operates as I think Dave, you're bringing up on just so many levels that they're so cleverly interwoven that it's hard to kind of pick them apart. Cause it's such a unified package. Yeah. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts or insights, musings on adaptation? It's a real mind bender. Definitely worth checking out. Interesting. And I'm curious what other people think about the elements of like Darwin and mm. the idea of like how we grow and evolve and change. Like, mm. I think that's an interesting subplot. There's even a few v- quick vignettes of Darwin himself. of like, <laughs> right. a, a, And he's like beating up somebody. Is like Charlie's kind <laughs> yeah. of in one of his creative kind of like manic stupor modes. And he kind of, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting, another approach, which LaRoche uh, brings up as she's drive as he's driving with um, Streep. Yeah. Well, actually one thing that Susan Streep's character says is she's like, adapting is almost shameful it's like running away and so i feel like that also connects to this idea of like what does it mean to change shift perspectives like is it running away or is it like i guess there's that tension there are you just sort of like acquiescing are you just sort of falling into like whatever you you know new perspective you think you should have or is it about survival and understanding and changing and growing? And I don't know if it's interesting because at the end of the film, as she's holding Chris Cooper dead, she says, I want to be a baby again. I want to mm-hmm. go back. I want to be something new. So I guess mm-hmm. that's kind of tragic that even in that moment, she's like, I don't want to change. I want to do a clean slate, a fresh mm-hmm. restart. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, the, yeah. The title gives a lot away. I mean, it's a kind of a meditation on the necessity of change and growth, um, especially for, uh, a screenplay writ- written in the fictitious sense by a character that is reluctant to incorporate that theme. <laughs> and in the, f- the fact that uh, Charlie Kaufman's next movie that he wrote was Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, which yeah. definitely plays with time and like has some like elements of experimentation. But as far as like a forward emotionally uh, sort of forward moving story, like I think he he really had wrote a story that had a lot of emotional depth and talks about characters transforming and changing. And so you can see the real Charlie, Charlie Kaufman kind of growing and changing. Like it's like, I'm not always going to be that being John Malkovich guy. I can do so many different types of things Mm -hmm. and I can like play with, you know, storytelling, but I can also like Anomalisa, which was an animated movie that he wrote, which is devastating. Mm. It's a very simple plot, um, but is emotionally very intense. Um, And so I think it's kind of reflective of his career in real life as well. Mm -hmm. And Meryl Streep regards this uh, or did regard it at the time as the best screenplay she'd ever read. And, uh, you know, I, I'd put it up there. I think as like a, as a written screenplay, it's really a kind of a wonder. I'd be curious to read it and see kind of how that feels on the page. Well, that's adaptation. Um, you can find it on crackle, but just check to see at what point in movie, in the movie, (laughs) it 
takes you to. If but Meryl hey, Streep's in a hotel, you've gone too far. But maybe maybe this movie is fun to watch sliced and diced. Who knows? Mm. Uh, you, Sam, you said you would watch it again that way. Yeah. Watch it the Sam way. The Sam way. That's yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank you all uh, for some uh, great convo. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back with the whiteboard question. You didn't know it all? You seem so happy. I know. I heard them. Well, how could you we be so happy? I love Sarah Charles. It was mine. That love. I owned it. And Sarah didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whoever I want. Thought you were pathetic. <laughs> that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves Okay, um, we are uh, in our last portion of this episode. The this whiteboard. is where this is where yeah the alligator comes in. This is and where this the car alligator chases. comes in and hopefully saves us because it sounds like we're all <laughs> flying by the seat of our pants in uh, our responses for this whiteboard. The question. alligator would save us. It might. Yeah, <laughs> maybe worked in the movie. Oh, interesting. That gives me a good thought. Um, the whiteboard <laughs> question. For this last portion is, if you could write yourself into any movie, what would it be? Mm. Anybody want to take the helm? Mm. <laughs> Still waiting on that crocodile. I, I just, and we've already talked about this, but if I have the power to write myself into something, that means I want to change something significant. And the only thing that's coming to my mind are like, historical things and or Shakespearean things. Mm. So like I want to be on the Titanic like April mm, what's it April 13th and be like slow the fuck down. Slow down. (laughs) And then uh, much of James Cameron's chagrin. (laughs) Would you be 2019 Sam or would you be 1912 Sam or when did this 1914 1912, 12, yeah, I believe. 12 or 13. 1912, yeah. 1912. 1912, yeah. 1912. Um, 1912? It would be 2019 Sam, dressed as... Disguised! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming in, and, like, of course, you know, the uh, the guy played by um, Robin Williams' dad from Jumanji is like, Oh, I know everything! The ship can't sink. And, like, he, he wouldn't He's listen the owner to a woman. Or the big corporate... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. But like, I would just sow the seeds of doubt within everyone else. Mm. You know, um, the guy who's in Legally Blonde. <laughs> um, I'd be like, Billy hey. Zane. No, uh, no. What? He wasn't in. <laughs> Is Billy Zane know. in Legally Blonde? I don't know. He's in Titanic. I don't know. Um, no. Who cares about Billy Zane? I mean, no. Like, he's fine. <laughs> Phantom <laughs> fans do. <laughs> True. Um, but anyway, sow the seeds of doubt with other people and just be like, slow it down just 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 slow it down um or add more life whatever um that's huh mm. you check those rivets this today? is a movie i'd watch so. just sam like going around the, the ship's going down 
Did cold. you hear that girl trying to tell us that the ship's gonna? <laughs> it's sink? gonna do it. It's gonna do it. Just like get off now. Get off now. Um, but if it if it's not that, then I think that I would want to go into the nineties. What was it like 90, 95 or ninety six? Romeo plus Juliet. Oh yeah. yeah. Because so like every time this movie's done the director changes it just a little bit. And in this one in particular, Romeo and Juliet have a moment where they see that, where Romeo sees that Juliet's not dead. And then Juliet sees that Romeo has just killed himself. And they're like, no. I just want to be like, just wait a minute. Just hold off. Yeah. Hold off a minute. (laughs) Like you're in, you're in the, wherever she, She's I'm in like, like the in the the crypt, the tombs. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, 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 right, yeah. Right. Hold on, Ooh. she's fine. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. <laughs> Put the gun down, stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> um, huh. yes, both adaptations I would watch <laughs> definitely. It's interesting that you would save Leo twice because I, I opted for oh the same. Oh my god! <laughs> I opted for the same thing. I was thinking like if I could be any of them, I'd just be one of the people that like for for whatever reason was on the lifeboat in Titanic and just be like shouting over like, if you both sit on it, you might be fine. <laughs> oh, just both sit on it. He doesn't have to drown. Oh no yeah, one, you're huh? right. There could have there is room. There's been on yeah, all board. sorts of like memes and stuff that are like, hey, you know, that was you, a pretty big door. If you utilize space and you don't lay on it, <laughs> maybe maybe both of you get out of this alive. Yeah. Well, I have my Titanic adaptation too. Oh went all the way. I would be one of the researchers on the submarine, and oh. then. Not let that old lady drop that jewel oh, right? into the ocean. <laughs> Fuck that bitch. You're changing the very end. Changing very end. I'll, I'll hear her story. Yeah, everyone she's so a down, gifted but... storyteller. The whole, I'm not interested in changing history. Um, but I want that money. <laughs> I want to save that jewel. I want that jewel. I just push the old lady over. I throw her a door. But would you even wait? So, like, if, if you knew that she had it, would you even wait till she's about ready to go, eh? It's going to be a, like a, you know, in the bowels of the ship, like pillow situation. Jeez, that's grim. <laughs> I wasn't yeah, saying you're that. You're writing yourself it. in this movie as a monster. Oh, yeah. You can just Although, go in. interesting, you don't have to be the hero. You could yeah. be the villain. Oh. Yeah, I'm stealing that old lady's jewelry. And you're the villain of to the Titanic. Atlantic. Yeah. Usurping the iceberg the itself. The thing is, you don't have to do it. Obviously, she had it on her person. You just sneak into her room. She's not going to give it to me. As she's telling her story, it took eighty-seven well, years for her to tell the story. Bridge with Bill Paxton mm-hmm. yakking away. You can go, yeah, go grab it. You're like, I know how this ends. All right. <laughs> Take it. That's true. I mean, unless you want to kill her. Like, I mean, I, I want to kill her. <laughs> All right, then fine. <laughs> this is personal. This is my adaptation. <laughs> that old lady made me wait three hours for the story. <laughs> <laughs> two VHS tapes. <laughs> two tapes. Damn it. <laughs> what movie needs two VHS tapes? Well, um. I've been, I've had uh, Love Actually on the Mind (laughs) for not great reasons. I think I mentioned last week that I watched it for the millionth time with my mom. Thanksgiving. I'm constantly reminded how mediocre that movie is, except for Emma Thompson. But the one you guys got me thinking about... um, Rowan Atkinson's character as sort of the om- omniscient, all-knowing 
gift-wrapped guy. And I'm like, maybe if there were more of him in that movie, people could realize how fucked up every situation like is. Like duplicates of him? Duplicates of him everywhere. Like, like instead Whoa. of... I don't think so. Um, I don't know. All of the shit, like the whole storyline with the with the guy and Kira Knightley holding up all the placards. I, I Mr. Bean could like show up behind him and be like <laughs> oh fuck this guy. You're in a committed wonderful relationship already. Just like ignore this guy and move on. Um he could show up right when Laura Linney is like trying to have, you know, sex with the hot guy and then her brother calls and he's like, "Um hello, you can be a really loving sister." And have a fucking amazing relationship too. Ignore that. All of the things. Like maybe he could just draw. No, no. I'm actually talking. Where, where are you in this? I am Rowan Atkinson. Oh, okay. Oh. I have written myself in as Mr. Bean, and <laughs> but gift, several I'm just of you. gift wrapping everywhere, <laughs> and just being like, things can actually be better. Can you take some cues from being John Malkovich, where everybody, where you are, everyone's wearing Rowan Atkinson masks? Yes. And- uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he has some of the best outfits in the whole movie. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he can remind the woman from Portugal that she doesn't need to be with Colin Firth. She can just do her own thing. Anyhow. So you're right. basically the Clarence of this movie from <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Except you don't bite any cops. I'm not going to bite cops, but... You yeah. won't get any wings. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll just, yeah, just me gift wrapping everywhere. That's my answer. <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right. Well, that was uh, a roller coaster. So um, <laughs> as we wrap this episode up, do we have any um, things we would like to share? Um, any? Oh, actually, I do. I have one thing. Oh, oh yeah. yay. Um, okay. So on January 11th, um, I will be doing a f- little kind of sound performance installation thing at a novel idea um our friend misty's bookshop in south philadelphia so you're not doing anything on saturday january 11th 7 p.m it's gonna be some there's some noises it's gonna be lit yeah or who knows but it'll be fun so check it out check it out yeah Yeah. i suppose you can uh, always find butter with that on our various social medias which um you know, you guys can access through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can email us as well. Um, Tori, uh, of course, is writing for uh, Cinema 76 and continues to do so. So keep an eye out for those materials as they are published. And um, I suppose uh, unless anyone has anything else, we'll be um, we'll be jumping in and rejoining you next week for more Christmas. Also, for everyone out there. PJ's inside out and backwards. We need some snow. It's been rain, 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 rain. This time last year, we were talking about snow. So, I mean, no, snow as in like, not to, you know, disrupt everyone's life, but just snow that blankets at night and then is totally clear by the morning. Yeah. Beautiful. You had something to say, sorry. No, I had nothing to add. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Well, see ya. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. Goodbye. Mr. Bean.